Hello, I'm Marvin Fant, and this is Fantline, where we're not afraid to speak truth, and it doesn't matter if you're conservative or liberal, Democrat or Republican, because right always trumps over wrong. Enough said. Hello, everyone. Praise the Lord. Now you've seen the title. Now here's the message. Before I get into that, I just want to explain why the purpose of this message. The purpose is to expand our minds on what the Bible is about. Too often, we as Christians will read the Bible at a microwave rate. What do I mean by that? I mean is that we want to rush through the Bible at rapid pace. We want to read like this. We want to read the whole Bible within a year or within a, a certain time frame. Why is that? Why is there a need to rush through the Bible? See, the Bible is chock full of information that's beneficial to us. And it's like sitting down at a meal. You don't want to rush through your meal. You want to savor every bite, every morsel, particularly when it is a fabulous meal. You know, um, me and my wife, we've gone to a Ruth's Chris, very expensive restaurant, but it's worth it. And when we have our meal there, we savor and take in every bite because it's that good. We don't want to rush through it. The Bible should be an experience where we enjoy, we take in, we learn from every sentence, every word, every phrase, every paragraph, every book of the Bible, because it's good for our soul. I saw a uh, Komodo dragon, it, it, it devoured, I don't know what, it, maybe it had been a cow from an elk or whatever, but it just gobbled it up whole, took it in whole. <laughs> and uh, I put it on my timeline on Facebook and I said, you know, you just need to take in Enjoy what you're eating. So like the Bible, enjoy, take in, learn from what we take in of the Bible because it's God's word, it's God's spoken word. But like I said, we're too busy trying to run through the Bible 
instead of instead of the Bible, instead of letting the Bible run through us. Matter of fact, do a slow pace through us. So we make sure we get everything in. Okay, that, that was my little soapbox right there. I'm going to give you several verses that are widely misinterpreted in the Bible. Starting with James chapter 1, verse 2. And I'm reading from the uh, King James Version. All right. So if you have a you know NIV or something else, just know that the, the wording may be off a little bit. So James chapter 1, verse 2. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse or diverse temptations. Diverse temptations, different temptations. It says, Count it all joy. And Here's the thing with that with that verse. You get a lot of people, a lot of Christians, who will take that verse and say, where well, it says, count everything all joy. So that means if you get hit by a car, count it all joy. Uh, you, you, your mother went to the, the emergency room, count it all joy. And basically, I, I remember when first getting saved, that was, it really, the person that I asked didn't really know how to explain that to me in a the proper way. So that's how I took it because they perceived it that way. But that's not the way that the Bible is explaining it. It says, <clears throat> count it all joy. Now, what I had to do in this is kind of break it down and I looked up the word um, temptations, and that means, according to the Greek, pertaining to this passage, also in Hebrew. Sometimes we have to go outside of of um, the European English definitions and then we have to get to the root of things the genesis of which would either be hebrew or greek so the word temptations uh, is uh, they put into proof of god be it experience of evil solicitation discipline or provocation and by implication and adversity in other words trials and then the word count, count it all joy. Count is a um, perspective word, meaning saying to assign a meaning to the trial that will bring you joy. In other words, I'm going to just break this down in layman's terms. Count it all joy is that we are to be more aware of the presence of God than the presence of the trial that you're going through. I'll say that again. 
when it says count it all joy, it is that we be more aware of the presence of God than the presence of the trial that you're going through. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'll give you an example. I'll give you a real good example. When you look at Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro, <laughs> I mean a bad Abednego, I, I like to play around with that with that name. They were the epitome of a trial by fire, right? I mean literally. And they stood by God the Father and basically said, and I'm paraphrasing that no matter what, even if you don't save us from this, we will still be of you and by your side. We will still be about you, even though you may not come and save us from this. But we're still going to proclaim you as Lord and Savior. That is counting it, count it all joy. That is a, 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 a form of counting all joy because they were aware of the presence of God. They were looking at the, 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 the long view of things, not just in that moment. more so than the presence and than the trial that they were going through. They counted it joy because they were aware of God overall and by literally being tried by fire like steel, they were forged and toughened for the sake of God. And God saved them from that. And let it be a message for us to consume. So there you have it on that one. Clarification on that. And let's go to the next one. The next one is Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. Now, you hear this all the time. This is probably one of the more popular ones from those that are not saved. The unsaved person will bring this up all the time that they will automatically pull this scripture out of their hip pocket when they feel cornered, when they feel pressured, when they feel, when they, when they are being told something that they should not do, they will pull this one out of their hip pocket and serve it to you on a platter. But you, don't you be dismayed by that. They'll, they'll say, well, who are you to judge? And then all of a sudden that Christian will back away. But putting that in the proper context, putting that in the proper context, we shouldn't point fingers and condemn. That's what the religious of Jesus' day and today did and do. And it helps no one. What we should do is come alongside each other in love. It's not judging to help someone see to see the sin in their life. 
it's judging when we condemn them for that sin rather than helping them. And there's a big difference. See, there's scripture in there where Jesus says, before going to your brother and telling that person the wrong that they did, first take out the beam in your eye. Get yourself straight on that situation. And then you can come and tell that person in loving kindness. Okay? That's how it's supposed to be. That's how it should go. That's like me saying, oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be smoking, you blah, 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 blah. But then at the same time, I'm behind closed doors and smoking. Take that beam out of my eye. Put, in other words, put that cigarette down. Stop smoking. Get myself straight on, on that particular subject that I'm about to lay down on this person. Now the door is open for me to come to that person in love. But also let it be let you let yourself be let allow yourself to be led by the Holy Spirit also. Don't just let your flesh jump ahead first. Allow your spirit man to speak through you. Next one. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, many have missed the real purpose of this passage. Paul is actually talking about being content whether we are hungry or full, having plenty or little, in prison or free. He's saying that God will get you through the seasons. God will get you through the seasons that God brings you to. And it's not that we can accomplish whatever we want. See, again, when reading the Bible, we have to put things in its proper context. Many times, we as Christians, we will pluck and pull things out of its context to make it fit what we desire. And it's not that way. It's not, not to be that way. We must keep things in, in his, keep God's word in his proper context. Because eventually, whatever you're talking about, there's scripture in there. So there's no need for us to kind of quasi-manipulate the words of the Bible, because that's what many of us have done over the years. And then we teach it over the pulpit. And that's wrong. And then we wonder why why sometimes some of our prayers are not being answered and not getting through. That's one of the reasons why. Because the word has been tangled and twisted to fit a purpose and need. Because it was taken out of context. Matthew 18 and 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. 
Many Christians will use this as a way of prayer. They'll get two or three other Christians together and pray. <clears throat> that is not the situation in this particular passage. You can find that elsewhere, but not in this particular passage. This particular passage, basically this verse is often misquoted quoted to say that because there are more than three in the room, God is there. When we use the verse this way, it infers that when there are not two or more, then God is not there. I know most people don't believe that, but that's how we use this verse and also the way I also had explained it or how we use it. See, if we were to read the surrounding verses in Matthew 18, you would see a different message. Jesus is actually giving instructions on what to do when you have a conflict with a person. When you have a disagreement with someone, you should go to other, to other people and, and get confirmation okay, of what's going on. It's not about how many people need to be present for God to be with them. Rather, practical advice on how to handle conflict. So let's go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, let's say, uh, let's see, 15. Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In other words, keep it between yourselves. Go there, man to man, woman to woman, whatever, male to female, female to male. Explain the situation. Let's hash this out just between us, okay? And this is Jesus talking. If he shall hear you, you have gained your brother. If he shall hear you, in other words, they're not trying to talk over you while you're trying to explain things. They're listening. Listen, and also you should do the same when somebody wants to confront you about something. Listen, okay? Listen. It says, but if he will not hear you, then take with you one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. In other words, it's not going to be a he said, she said thing. Now you got people, now you got two or three more to join in here because first that person didn't want to or being hard-headed about just being you and that person so now you have to involve two or three other people and it says verse 17 that if he shall neglect to hear them tell it to the church see that tell it to the church but if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto you as a heathen and as a publican. Not a Republican, but a publican. A publican back then was someone who was despised. Okay? Not the most popular person on the block. That was a publican. 
But in other words, bring it to the church, bring it to the pastor, bring it to the whole church, and still don't want to hear. Then it's like, okay, we wash our hands of you. We tried everything. You just don't want to get on board. You don't want to hash this thing out. That is the proper way to do things in conflict. And then Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say unto you that if, and, it, and this is what, this, check it, this is what he said. He said, again, he re, he's reestablishing, I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching in anything that shall be asked and shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, then I'm in the midst of them. There you have it. Clarification. Clarification. Let's go to the next one. Next one is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Guess what that one is? Money is the root of all evil. Now, this is how many people put it. Money is the root of all evil, but it's not the root of all evil because that's not what the verse says. The verse says, for the love of money, for the love of money, for the love of money is the root of all evil. For the love of money, not money itself, because money is an inanimate object. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, it, therefore, it's just a couple of words off, but it's a big difference. And lastly, lastly, this one, it says so many times that people put it out to be in the Bible, but it's, these words are not in the Bible. It's mainly been used as a mantra, and it's pretty conflicting. And the words are, once saved, always saved. But instead of me explaining this, I got a friend here. Well, I don't know him personally, but I'm just saying it in that manner. His name is a guy named Lewis Scott, and he's going to explain it. Check it out. Liars keep these people believing once saved, always saved. If that was so, I wouldn't be in church that murder me. No. I'll be somewhere where I'll be chilling out on North Beach. That's right. One save, always save. I got saved 30 years ago, and now I'm just saved forever. So I'm smoking, drinking, gambling, got all the women, got all the men I want, selling girl. Come on now. That's right. You ain't nothing but a sinner. That's all. A Bible totally cross wearing, Cadillac driving, sinner. That's right. That's right. Listen, the Lord is with you. Look at the term. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you on what term? While ye be with him. And what else did he say? And if ye seek him, if you seek him, he will be found of you. What? But uh oh. But but if ye forsake him, if you leave him, he will, will forsake you. So it ain't no one save always saved. No. You'll be lied to. That's right. If your pastor preaches, he lied to. Alright, so I got a major issue with this type of theology. 
So what are we talking about? We're talking about salvation. Let's define it. It's the saving of human beings from sin and its consequences. When people start to tell you that you can lose your salvation, but imply that they haven't yet lost theirs, put your thinking cap on because they're probably about to tell you some mess. Now, I'm not going to say this is false doctrine because maybe I missed something, but I'm pretty sure that the passage that he's pulling from, Second Chronicles, has been taken out of context because in context, this is more just a warning to King Asa and all of Judah and Benjamin to stay close to God. They had just finished defeating an close to God. They had just finished defeating an army of about a million soldiers. So it's a warning to keep your heart on the Lord because if you forsake him, don't expect to have this kind of victory and peace that you just experienced to be happening in the future. And if you forsake God, you put yourself in a position to be liable for the consequences of your actions. It's not talking about a truly saved person's salvation at all because there's way too many reassurances that tell us that God will never forsake his children for us to be picking and pulling pieces of scripture out of context like this, making it say what we wanted to say and then building an entire ideology behind it. First Chronicles 28, my God is with you. He would not leave you nor forsake you. First King 8, may God be with us like he was with our ancestors and may he never leave us nor forsake us. Deuteronomy 4, God is a merciful God. He would not abandon or destroy you. Deuteronomy 31 and 6, God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Deuteronomy 31 and 8, the Lord himself goes before you and he will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Genesis 28, I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will never leave you. Hebrews 13, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Joshua 1 and 5, as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 28, and surely I am with you always and will be with you until the end of the age. Do you get my point? And let's just be transparent for a moment because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And that includes even people like Jeffrey Dahmer, who has taken the lives of nearly 20 people in very horrific ways. I want to show you something and get your feedback on it. Watch this. I always I always believe the, uh, the lie that uh, evolution is truth, the theory of evolution is truth, that we all just came from uh, the slime and... Uh, when we when we died, you know, that was it. There was nothing. So it, the whole theory cheapens life, and uh, started reading books about how that show how evolution is is just a complete lie. There's there's no there's no basis in science to to uphold it. And I've come to since come to believe that uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true creator of uh, the heavens and the earth. It just didn't just happen. And uh, I have accepted him as my Lord and Savior. And I believe that I, as, long, as well as everyone else, will be accountable to him. So Jeffrey Dahmer took the lives of all those people and then gave his life to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's my question. Do you think that Dahmer is going to be in heaven with the holy sanctified, this is my seat on Sunday morning type of people? If we believe in Christ and the grace that he has for us, and this was a true conversion, then that's your brother in Christ. Somebody better come get their brother. Listen, I didn't write it and I didn't say it, but it has been written and it has been said. And some people say that the saying, once saved, always saved, is just a license to sin because you can live your life any kind of way that you want to and still be in heaven. Now, I would definitely not recommend that because after all of the revelations have come to pass in the Bible, we all still got to stand and face God and give an account for our life, but actually I agree 100%.
under grace, you do have a license to sin, but you also have a license not to. God has freely given that choice to you. It gets into the doctrine of antinomianism, which essentially says going against the law and saying that, hey, let's just keep sinning because we're going to end up in heaven regardless. But these are not new discussions. They were having these types of conversations even in Bible day. In Romans 6, it says, well, what should we say then? Should we just keep on sinning so that grace can increase? By no means, because we died to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? I interpret that to mean that once you truly become saved, you become a new creation that has a greater desire to want to obey and please God, not less of a desire and want to keep doing wrong and take advantage of God's grace. But even under grace, you still have a law to follow. It's just not the Mosaic law. Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic law and gave us a new law to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's a law from love and not obligation. And as a new creation in Christ, you have more gratitude for what Christ did for us by taking on the unbearable weight of punishment and sin that we so rightly deserve. So I don't believe that once you're truly saved that you can lose your salvation. The Bible says that when people turn away from the faith, all they're doing is showing you that they were never truly a follower of Christ to begin with and that true followers of Christ won't stay in a continual state of unrepented sin. I think you can lose your sanctification, but never lose your justification. And when Christ returns, you will still have your glorification. Justification is being saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is being saved from the power of sin and glorification is being saved from the presence of sin. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Where I'm going with this is that Christ is the end of the law so that we can have righteousness for anyone that believes. The law doesn't save you, Christ does, which is why God sent his son to completely fulfill the requirements of the law for anyone who would believe in him. Check out Galatians. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Jesus came to fulfill the law as well as prophecy, which is why in the ninth hour he cried out, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a major parallel to the prophetic words that David recorded hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came to earth as a human being. In Psalm 22, 1, it says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Christ says this in the ninth hour because he is fulfilling those prophecies about a Messiah that was to come. So we can't boast and brag about salvation like it's something that we did ourselves because it's by grace that we are saved through faith. And when you start to think that you can add your works to the finished work of Christ on the cross and you start to think that you can earn your salvation and you can keep yourself saved, then you remove everything that Christ did on that cross. The debt that we owe Christ could never be repaid. And it was for our sake that he was forsaken and cried out in the ninth hour, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is so that if we put our faith in him, that we would never be forsaken. So I hold on to the eternal security of the believer because I don't trust that God wants us to be unclear 
about our salvation. Listen, if we could lose our salvation, then everybody would have lost it already, especially me. Because if you spit in my face, slap me upside my head, put a nail in my hand, and then hang me on a board, if I could lose my salvation, oh, I'm going to lose it on that day for sure. If you can gain your salvation on Monday, lose it on Tuesday, throw it up in the air on Wednesday, hula hoop with it on Thursday, roll some dice with it on Friday, go to the club with it on Saturday, and then find it again in the Bible on Sunday because pastor preached a good word, then that's not salvation. That's gambling. In order for a new creation to no longer have salvation, that new creation would have to be destroyed. God would then have to go back and request a complete refund for redeeming us through Jesus Christ. And then he would also have to go back and undeclare what he already declared about us being justified, which is why we need a savior. But if you think that you can lose your salvation, you're giving yourself way too much credit because you've knowingly or unknowingly adopted an ideology to think that you can earn your own salvation and keep yourself saved. So you believe in the power of you to save you. So my question is, who is your savior? Because John eleven twenty six says that whoever lives by believing in me shall never die. Because if you truly believe the arrogance and the foolishness that you can lose your salvation, then you don't really believe what Christ said. Because how can you lose something that's everlasting and eternal? And Christ said that he would never leave us nor forsake us. What does the word never mean to you? To me, the word never means not ever, not gonna happen, not a chance. Nunca, nakni, ijame, shebu, nikada. In other words, never. Ever, 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 ever. Do you get my point? The question is, do you truly believe that Jesus Christ lived, taught, died, and rose from the dead? Do you truly believe in the resurrected Christ? Anyway, I hope this message helps somebody. Peace. So there you have it. Misinterpretations of the Bible. I gave you several, several verses of it. But the main thing is, when reading the Bible, and pretty much reading anything, get to know what you're reading. If you don't understand a word, look it up. Therefore, you get a better understanding of what's going on. When you come across a verse and it seems kind of, it just, you, just, you just don't know how to, you know, see about it, take in that verse as a whole. In other words, you read that chapter you read the content of that message because those words have brothers and sisters and cousins and so forth that connect with it. So you apply those in its proper context, proper, excuse me, proper context. So it's all about learning and growing and don't be in such a rush to know about God's word. Take your time. Inhale it. Digest it. Savor it. Let it fulfill you. Because God's word is everlasting. 
And it's good for the soul. Enough said. Thank you for checking out Fantline. Until next time, keep Jesus first and be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Thank you.